Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. And I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome back to the New Books and Indian Religions podcast, a podcast channel here on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Dr. Raj Balkor, and more importantly today, I have the pleasure of speaking with Dr. Ina Ilkama, who is Assistant Professor at the University of Southeastern Norway. We'll be talking about a brand new open access publication called The Play of the Feminine, Navratri in Kanchipuram. Ina, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much, Raj. It's um, very, I'm very excited to be here. Yes, it's lovely having you, and um, it's uh, especially nice to see you again. I mean, we've we've collaborated some time ago, I think, on the, the Nine Nights volume some years ago. So clearly, you're very much still interested in the festival. Do you want to tell us a little bit about your interest in the festival and maybe the backstory for the book? Yeah, sure. Um, so the book is basically my uh, my PhD project. Uh, I wrote a monograph, which I now have uh, published uh, in book form. Um, I was interested in goddesses and goddess traditions, um, and I already had a network in Tamil Nadu um, since I did my MA on the village goddess Mariamman and her uh, mythology. And then I visited a lot of Mariamman temples and other goddess temples in Tamil Nadu, and many of these goddess temples celebrated Navaratri grandly. I was there in the autumn. A great spectacle, uh, lots of people coming, uh, many exciting and diverse rituals, such as these um, enactments of the goddess's fight with a demon, um, wonderful elaborate themed alamkaras, which are decorations of the goddess, um, women and girls being worshipped as the goddess, uh, and so on. So I was intrigued by this, uh, by what was going on, really. Um, and uh, one of these temples uh, is one of the temples that I write about in my book, one of these Mariaman temples. And here women's rituals were very prominent. Women participated in uh, bhakti rituals, processions, pujas, uh, so on. Um, and I also became familiar with this uh, Goli tradition, uh, a South Indian practice, which I guess I will elaborate on uh, later. And I was intrigued by how 
I mean, how the festival had this domestic side to it. So this kolu is something you do at home, um, as well as uh, these temple rituals going on uh, for nine or 10 days with huge celebrations. So that's how my interest was sparked. Uh, I wanted to know really what was going on uh, and to see if there was any connection between what happened in homes and what happened in the temples. And um, studying Navaratri uh, in Kanchipuram also allowed me to, to do a project where I could combine uh, fieldwork with uh, looking at uh, Sanskrit texts as a Sanskrit uh, scholar. Um, so I also look at mythological uh, texts as well as uh, ritual texts. Um, but uh, yeah, the book is not really that textually oriented. Uh, I deal a lot with oral traditions as well. Um, so the temple I just talked about, uh, which is called the Padavetanon temple, it's not scripturally sanctioned and uh, neither is this Skolu tradition. So the Sanskrit texts then mainly pertain to uh, the Kamakshi temple, which is the second temple that I'm talking about in my book. Could you say a little bit, we'll dive into the content, but say a little bit about the methodology, about the interplay of, you know, looking, being both, you know, as you probably well know, I'm a textual scholar. I quite enjoy lived religion and I think I enjoy people so much. I I use my ethnographic skills as a podcast host. But <laughs> um, could you tell us about the interplay between um, religion on the ground and textual traditions? Uh, is it common? Is it uncommon to sort of uh, marry the two and look at both? And what's that like for you in terms of being both a textualist and an ethnographer? Well, I think until quite recent times, it has been quite uncommon. You know, anthropology is one discipline and religious studies, which mainly has been focused on texts, is another. But the way I see it, I mean, this these fields are interconnected and uh, it makes sense to, to look at both whenever uh, that is possible. So yeah, even though, though I ended up maybe, uh, maybe with a book which is a bit more anthropological uh, than textual, I, I, think, uh, I think the texts almost also illuminate what's going uh, on uh, on the ground. Uh, and it's important to to investigate both. Yeah, I mean, I couldn't agree more. I mean, I, I wanted to hear your perspective on it, but certainly it is relatively rare in, in this slow-burning time of, of scholarly production. It's fairly recent that we have um, an integration of both, but but there have been a number of, of recent publications, I think, where we see more of an interplay between textual studies and what's happening on the ground. And, and um, how could they not be mutually illumining, as you say? And yet, and I think just because, you know, people have different temperaments. And if you're used to studying texts, I mean, studying people might be alien to you. And if you're used to studying people, you know, having your, your head stuck in Sanskrit grammar might be a little bit out of your your, your comfort zone. But but having both is great. And in my case, I, I surprisingly found um, that what I saw on the ground in terms of the ritual and the timing of the Navaratri ritual actually helped me to understand why the Devi Mahatmya was located where it was. It helped me to understand the, the Sanskritic canonization of the Devi Mahatmya and where it was located. And I have sort of a, a theory that has to do with the ritual timing of, of the actual festival on the ground. And it's it's really is a fascinating interplay, but I completely understand why certain scholars are geared towards one enterprise or the other. Now tell us about tell us a bit about the distinction between these two temples. 
uh, the Kamakchi temple and this other temple and tell us a little bit about, you know, how are they demarcated? What's, what's different about them overarchingly? So the Kamakshi temple is uh, an old temple, uh, a temple which is very well known in the area in Tamil Nadu. It hosts Kanchi uh, Puram's um, primary goddess or prime deity, uh, Kamakshi. It's a Brahmin temple. Um, it's a temple that belongs to the Sri Vidya tradition, which means uh, um it's a vedika it's a vedika tantric uh, temple uh, where the goddess is worshipped in in the form of an um uh, yantra the shrividra Shri yantra um so kamakshi has brahmin priests uh, her temple and her traditions are spiritually sanctioned um so yeah i spoke of uh, of um uh, that I have been looking at some of the texts. Uh, for instance, one text called the Lalitu Bhakyana, uh, which uh, narrates about uh, Kamakshi and her uh, manifestations in Kanchipuram, how she is higher than Vishnu, higher than Shiva, who is also manifest there. But the other temple uh, is um, a temple of a village goddess, or a so-called village goddess, called uh, Padavatanan, who is then a form of Mariaman. Um, this is a small local temple, which is of newer origin. It's from the 70s, um, but it's very, very popular. Uh, it draws a huge crowd um, for its uh, celebrations. Um, and here, uh, the goddess is um, she's not part of the Sanskritic ritual tradition or Sanskritic mythological tradition, but she, of course, has a very rich oral mythological tradition surrounding her. So um, what was interesting was uh, investigating what could be called as the sort of same rituals uh, in these two temples, which were enacted very differently. For instance, the goddess, uh, the goddess's killing of the demon. So can you say a bit more about the, the oral aspect of this, as you say, sort of non-Brahmanic temple? Um, are there... Uh, particular myths that are that are well known among uh, among attendees. Or tell us more about because I think you're uniquely poised because you have access to this tradition that doesn't exist in text. And so often we have the um, we have the the bias that or, or the conception that you know it starts with the text and then there's a tradition. But so often in the Indic world, the text actually is a condensation of an extant tradition, and you have access to a tradition that. No one else has access to it unless they go there and they study it. So tell us a bit about this this oral culture, if you will. Yeah, she's she's actually a very interesting um, and goddess. So uh, her name Padavatanan um, relates to the place where she originated, which is a place called Padavidu, which is uh, in northern Tamil Nadu, and um, and she has this. Um, I mean, almost. All manifestations of Mariamman relate to this one myth uh, in which she is beheaded. So this is a goddess who is worshipped in her temple uh, as a form, uh, as a head in the sanctum. So she's represented there either only as a head uh, or as an erect statue with a head in front of it. And this relates to her origin myth, which is very well known. Um, um, 
where she gets decapitated by her son, uh, Parashurama. This is also known from Sanskrit sources, um, but here uh, the woman who is decapitated is known as Renuka. But Renuka then, uh, from the texts, become Mariamman uh, on the ground. <laughs> there are also some Renuka temples, but, uh, but very often she is called Mariamman. Um, and she she's beheaded because she um, transgresses this sexual norm. She sees a Gandharva or something uh, who's making love in the water, and then she is beheaded. She loses her chastity. Uh, so she was originally a woman, an ordinary woman, married to a sage, sage Jamadagni, and then all these things happened. Um, and she got beheaded. Uh, and what's interesting is that in these local versions of the myth, this is not something which is in the Sanskrit sources, but uh, in the local renderings, uh, Renuka or Mariaman's head is then switched with a, a non-Brahmin woman's head, so that her head gets attached to a non-Brahmin body. And this is why she then merges into the ground with her non-Brahmin body. So the Brahmin head is only visible uh, and she's worshipped in the form of a head. And then she becomes a goddess uh, who particularly helps um, helps her devotees. I mean, she can help with anything, but uh, in scholarly literature, she has uh, this connection to uh, pox diseases and particularly chicken pox. So people very frequently go to her temples in the summer season to to get rid of the chicken box. Yeah, it's a fascinating myth. It's not just a myth resulting from Brahmanization, but it's also a myth depicting <laughs> Brahmanization, as it were. And, you know, I, I recently collaborated with um, uh, one of our colleagues, uh, Noor, who studies a regional Kerala um, goddess tradition, Bhadrakali, Bhadrakali Mahatmya. And it's really fascinating to sort of tease out the extent to which we see local tradition borrowing from Pan-Indic tradition or vice versa. And so uh, do we even have a sense as to whether the Renuka myth comes first or whether the Renuka myth is actually a Brahmanization of a local Mariama myth? It's, it's, I imagine that would be all conjecture at this point, but it's, could you say a word about the extent yeah. to which one tradition borrows from the other? I think that's not possible really to, to, uh, to figure out. Uh, what comes first. I mean, these things might have influenced each other. Um, but what, what's interesting is, I mean, this, this myth is very much alive um, in the surroundings of the temple. I mean, people are aware of the story. They know it, they narrate it. Uh, it's reflected there in her uh, image in the sanctum. Um, so this is her creation story. But then the myth of Mahisha, Mahisha Asura and Durga is attached to her. Um, so during Navaratri, she then kills the demon Mahisha and takes the form of Durga. Um, so, so, of course, these myths all relate to each other. But in the case of uh, Kamakshi, uh, she kills another demon. She has nothing to do with Mahisha Asura. And here we see that this demon myth uh, is very fundamental. It's, uh, uh, I mean, after Kamakshi has killed uh, the demon that she kills, which is called Bandasura or Bandakasura, what she does is, uh, yeah, she settles in Kanshipuram and she asks the god to create the temple for her, the Kamakshi temple. Uh, and then the ritual handbook 
uh, is uh, is created, which they use in the temple. Um, so yeah, it's it's so interesting to see how these myths interplay with each other and what what role they have uh, in in the temples. Utterly That's fascinating. I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian approved and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com slash NBN50 and use code NBN50 to get 50% off. That's code NBN50 at factormeals.com slash nbn50 to get 50 percent off yeah clearly there's a clearly you know as i've said this a number of times you know the best books are beginnings right the best books aren't endings and clearly there are a number of threads uh, here that that could that could well be developed further now the 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 book uh for those listening is divided into two parts the first part is uh you know navratri myth and temples I think we've touched on some of the themes there are in these two temples. The second part is Navratri at home. And the first uh, substantive chapter of part two is uh, something you mentioned in passing, uh, the Kolu. Tell us a bit about this, because there may be, um, certainly there are many of our listeners will be familiar with, you know, um, uh, as India is home to a vibrant goddess tradition, even the, the autumnal goddess festival. But this is a, a, a sort of a... a relatively unique phenomenon that's that's so vibrant and yet outside of this particular context i think few know what what kolu is so tell us about this hmm. and it's also um it's also a very interesting ritual um i myself am very fond of this part of the book in particular which deals with kolu um it's interesting and fascinating so um the kolu tradition uh, is a south indian tradition it's spelled as kolu but pronounced as golu uh, and basically, it's a display of dolls, mainly clay dolls. And since they are made of clay, they are said to have some divinity attached to them. Uh, so these clay dolls are then displayed on steps, on nine steps, ideally, um, correlating to the nine nights of uh, Navaratri. And they may represent, um, I mean, mainly deities, but almost anything. Uh, so you have themes from stories, from mythological stories, which are depicted through these dolls. Um, you have rituals, which are depicted, like weddings, processions, cricket matches. Uh, and you can also add to these displays, displays with um, anything from paper to cardboard, cotton, uh, to personalize them. So for instance, you could find uh, Himalaya scene with gods popping up from uh, cotton snow, uh, just to give an example. So all these dolls are then displayed uh, hierarchically on the steps uh, with deities on the top and um, human beings, saints and so on on the bottom. You can even have children's toys uh, on the floor. And the goddess is then usually installed among these dolls uh, in the form of a pot 
she's invoked in this uh, pot. Uh, and women do this ritual. So women arrange the golu uh, and they invoke the goddess in the pot. Uh, and women also buy the dolls from the doll makers and decide on any themes and so on. And then you invite uh, people home during Navaratri to watch this golu, to sing for it, to chant for it, to recite Sanskrit shlokas for it, um, to eat, uh, receive gifts, and some families are very, very, very elaborate uh, on this uh, practice. So they have huge doll displays, which can make up the entire living room, uh, maybe even hallways. But other people have just started very recently, which is um, another interesting aspect of this. Uh, because previously, Koli was um, particularly a Brahmin practice or a high caste practice. And something I show and discuss is uh, how um, non-Brahmin families from a variety of caste backgrounds now start practicing Kolu uh, and then how Kolu connects to sort of conspicuous consumption uh, and how middle-class Hindus may use this ritual to uh, display their wealth uh, because uh, it's an unspoken rule that you have to you have to buy at least one new doll each year most people buy more. So eventually you will end up with a huge collection. It requires money. You also need money to provide gifts to the visitors because there are certain things you then have to present the women who are coming uh, as uh, visitors. Um, so, and the homes, uh, you know, people come home to you to see this. So the homes are opened up. The homes are, are on display uh, and in a sense, even become public. Some would um, some would compare their home to a temple once they had this color there with the goddess installed. But I also show uh, how the ritual itself changes during this process. Uh, so for instance, I met a couple of families who would offer meat and alcohol to their color. Um, and in one home, which I describe, uh, the female host regularly becomes possessed by the goddess on the Golu, so she she uses Navaratri and Golu then as a, an occasion to um, speak prophecy to her visitors. So these are among uh, among some of the interesting aspects of these traditions. Uh, also, social commentary. If I can just say a couple of words about that, because you can you can use um, the Golu to make displays of any kind. And very often, um, you see this in the media as well, uh, you can make themes which reflect uh, current events uh, like uh, organ donation, uh, solar power, um, traffic problems in Chennai. Um, and very often, these themes may reflect uh, recent events. So that when the Shabrimala case happened, for instance, where women uh, went to the Shabrimala temple in Kerala, where they previously were not allowed to enter. Uh, then uh, people started making Shabrimala um, displays in their colleague. Uh, or when the chief minister Jaya Lalita uh, died, she died a few years back, then Jaya Lalita dolls, uh, the sale of these dolls increased, for instance. So there are so many interesting uh, things or 
angles to to aspects of this Golu practice, which uh, I look into. Fascinating. Is this a women's practice? Is this a women's space? Yes, definitely. Um, so not necessarily, but very often uh, women are the ones who um, put up the Golus, uh, do the rituals, and women also um, go from home to home and visit each other. And I think that I myself visited 50, 60 Golus uh, during my two periods of fieldwork. And I never visited a place where uh, there were males present unless they lived in the household themselves. So unless they were the husbands of the, the women who, who uh, had the color. Uh, so definitely, um, but with a few ex exceptions, uh, the priests of the Kamakshi temple, for instance, they were very eager to have a say in where the dolls uh, were going or the dolls arrangements. Um, maybe it has to do with them being experts on decorating the goddess's image in the temples, maybe. That's something I discuss. Uh, and I also met this very interesting or fascinating guy, a man, uh, who was a Vishnu devotee, who made or fashioned his own dolls out of waste material. Um, so he was... Uh, he was interested also in arts and crafts, which probably inspired his take on the Kalu. Um, this was a Kalu, a one-of-a-kind Kalu. Uh, usually people buy the dolls. They don't necessarily make them uh, themselves. Uh, but his Kalu also demonstrated um, maybe some limitations to this practice, since um, he, was, he was very... Uh, he did it also. He did it as a sort sort of social commentary, um, environmental commentary using waste material. Uh, but by the Vaishnava community, uh, it was not met uh, with much enthusiasm to make gods and particularly to make Vishnu out of waste. What surprised you, or what struck you about this research? Well. Uh, maybe how flexible these rituals are and despite of lots of unwritten rules to how to to do the Kali practice and written rules uh, on how to do temple practice and it's a lot of space to do variations in ritual and not one Kali was similar to another and actually the only thing which was present everywhere, um, and now I speak of the Kolu tradition, was this tambulam, to give a plate of gifts to the visitor. Uh, the gifts may vary, but that was the one thing which was the same in every home. Um, also in temples, when I did my field work um, back in 2014, 2015, they had the tradition in the Kamakshi temple to, to worship uh, altogether eight girls as the goddess so they worship uh, girls and invoke Kamakshi on them but uh, I've learned that now they have uh, 108 girl uh, puja in the Kamakshi temple so things change, things develop um, and that's interesting and I 
also um, got an eye-opener on how to conceive of texts. Um, so the texts were my starting point, and I came to Kanchipuram with a quite naive idea that the priests, uh, for instance, would um, know the texts well uh, or perform what was in the text. Um, but uh, the priests I spoke to, they didn't have the Sanskrit texts, so they had them memorized. They um, they just had them in a different manner, so to say. Uh, and it became clear to me that the text for the priests was something else than a text for me or what I thought of as a text. So this research also broadened my understanding of uh, texts to include texts as embodied or texts as enacted or performative or more fluid uh, notions of texts. So fascinating. Yeah. yeah, it's it's really refreshing to hear your remark about um, uh, the quote unquote texts. I mean, part of my training, I mean, as you well know, I have academic training and part of my training was actually part of a uh, an extent oral lineage of teachings, primarily on texts such as the Bhagavad Gita and Yoga Sutras. And so every once in a while, I have an online school where, you know, I, I teach basically anybody who, who's interested, but every once in a while, there might be a very keen student who's very, very much interested in learning the Yoga Sutras. And I may take them on and share one-on-one -on -one exposition. And so often I get the comment, um, wow, I haven't seen this before, or where is this from, or which commentary is this from? And it's so challenging to communicate to a western student in particular that there's so much knowledge that's preserved orally it's not written down it's not in a text mm. it, it was learned sort of you know person to person parampara, you know from, from one to the other and and this is uh i think this is a really uh I, I think it's an intriguing and perhaps even vexing idea that uh there might be um uh canonized material but canonized in a very different fashion where it's orally preserved and, and used day in and day out in a very different way um and also texts such as for example the yoga sutras i mean clearly they were composed for exegesis they were clearly they were sutric material isn't remotely standalone so it 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 it's it, uh, as evidence from the actual sutras it's it's meant to be used as a prop or as a starting point for commentary within tradition. So I find it fascinating that you saw the same thing within the ritual context of the temples. What, um, what would you say you hope folks most take away from the book? What are some key takeaways or ideas or, you know, what is the, the, the work that you think the book is doing? Well, I hope that they will, the readers will learn something about um, women's rituals. Um, but also, yeah, um, local vernacular traditions. I mean, I, I feel that I do a lot in the book. So there's... Uh, you do. <laughs> there's something for everyone um, uh, in here. Um, and, and the festival is, of course, a tremendously rich and very diverse festival, um, which I try to analyze as a celebration of, of the goddesses' powers in association with women um, and how women can tap into these powers. Um, so, yeah, uh, I, I think it will be be relevant for uh, 
scholars or students of um, festival cultures, uh, South Asian festival cultures, um, both vernacular and temple rituals, uh, women's studies, mythology, yeah. Ritual studies, you name it. Um, so of course, you know, one of my, my purposefully naive questions was going to be, so the play of the feminine, what does that mean? But I think at this point we realize it's a bit of a pun, isn't it? It's about the feminine divine and also also the, the, the sphere of the, the, the earthly feminine. Um, just uh, maybe two more questions before we close for today. One is, um, is your sense that women have always been so robustly empowered in this space? Or is your sense that there's something about our changing times that's contributing to women's roles? and women's empowerment in these spaces? Well, that's a bit difficult to answer since the study is, uh, of course, contemporary. Uh, but I think that the home might have provided this space for women uh, for a long time, but maybe it hasn't been that visible until now. I mean, women's rituals are not scripturally sanctioned. They're not part of the Sanskrit tradition. They have been transmitted orally. Um, but this is about to change. Uh, I mean, you, you find you find these magazines describing rituals to do during Navaratri, for instance, um, so that these, these non-Brahmin families, who, for instance, are starting up with Kalu, um, they can consult these magazines now in writing uh, to get to know what to do, which for the Brahmins uh, was knowledge, which was traditioned, and now, I mean, transmitted um, from family member to family member. Uh, as part of their tradition so that is one uh, one change um, and also you know homes are opened up more uh, now maybe than they were before also maybe social media plays in here that people are able to display these rituals that they do uh, in their homes through social media so things are definitely changing yeah well thank you for indulging the conjecture of course i often ask questions that are beyond anyone's radar but they're they're sort of fun and i've said before that generalizations are not occupational hazards they're actually assets on podcasts um but this this idea i, I this is resonates this idea that it's not such that women are now only now empowered in the home sphere in the domestic sphere I mean, just in terms of my own my own perspectives from reading and and also witnessing Hindu homes, particularly diasporic Hindu homes, it's such that the empowerment of women in on the home front is more visible, mm-hmm. and we we have more access to it. It's it's more and also um, you know. Golu uh, uh, or not, whether it's a, a, a religious uh, phenomenon or or just a sort of a um, other facets of the home life, we have so much access to people's home lives thanks to to Facebook or, or, or social media, where people will share what they're up to in their home sphere in a way curated, albeit, but they'll share. We have access uh, via social media, so I think that really sounds apt. That's a huge game changer in terms of uh, publicizing what has been going on perhaps behind in, in a more cloistered space uh, hitherto. Um, the, the, perhaps the last question I'd like to ask is, um, could you say a little bit about what it was like coming into these spaces as um, a researcher, potentially an outsider, you know, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but also potentially as an honored guest, you know, as a researcher, as a Westerner, as a, um, you know, what, what was the reception like? Were there concerns that, you know, 
of being scrutinized and being studied or, you know, what was it like for you in terms of your role as a researcher in these spaces? Well, uh, people, all people were very friendly. Um, when I went to Golu jumping, which is the word for uh, going from home to home, <laughs> watching uh, Golus, I uh, I usually had a female uh, research assistant with me uh, who was Tamil um, and who could translate for me. Uh, I speak only a little bit Tamil myself. Um, so uh, we usually showed up unannounced, uh, but this is not uncommon during Navaratri and during Golu. I mean, people go uh, Golu hopping and you never know who may show, show up. So people gladly invited us in um, and gladly uh, spoke about uh, how they they spoke about their Kolu traditions, uh, how they uh, how they celebrated Navaratri. Um, everybody was very open, um, and uh, the things. Uh, I mean, I had great help uh, bringing with me um, my research uh, assistant uh, who could also explain um, to me um, the things that I uh, the things that I um, I mean all the stories in the Goli for instance uh, which I didn't necessarily recognize um, but what, what was depicted there she could explain everything to me um, so the Tamils are very friendly and I felt welcome and what was interesting was uh, I think I I think I mentioned that it's common to sing in front of these goddess and recite for the goddess so I often was invited to sing so I've uh, I've sung a lot of Norwegian folk songs and even the Norwegian national anthem in very many homes in Kanchipura for these uh, field works that's beautiful <laughs> <laughs> Can you imagine you singing Norwegian? And there's just something so incredibly syncretic about uh, Indic traditions, Hindu traditions. It's sure, let's add some Norwegian to the mix. Why not? It's lovely. <laughs> um, uh, uh, a final thought: Is there? Um, are you continuing this work in some way? What's What's next for you? What's What are you working on now? Well, uh, I'm I'm working on writing a book in Norwegian about Hindu goddesses and goddess traditions. Uh, so I will most likely not be invited back to the podcast to promote that. Uh, but um, it's not much written on Hinduism in, uh, in Norwegian. We had a few introductory books. Um, so I will use some of my experiences uh, and encounters with the goddesses in that book. Um, and we, we, have, uh, we have a quite a huge Tamil diaspora here in Norway, actually. Uh, just this uh, past summer, um, it opened uh, Norway's biggest Hindu temple opened, which is a Tamil temple, which is the first temple to be constructed as um, a, a Hindu temple, a proper Hindu temple. So uh, Tamil architects designed the inside uh, and um, Norwegian architects designed the outside. So I'm very eager to do some research there on the Tamil diaspora here. Um, and maybe also uh, investigate how they celebrate uh, Navaratri. So we'll see. Um, and I also, I work in the teacher education currently, um, teaching Hinduism and also Buddhism and Sikhism to future uh, RE teachers. 
or religious education teachers. So I have uh, I have a project um, where I'm interested in in how Hinduism is being taught in the Norwegian school system. So yeah, a few things coming up. Well, that all sounds incredibly fascinating, and I can't help but muse that there's a there's one temple that I frequent from time to time. It happens to be a, a Tamil temple. It's not in Toronto proper. It's about 45 minutes away, uh, north of Toronto. And it's ancient. It's ancient by North American standards. Uh, it was it was built by by uh, Tamil immigrants, but this would have been the early 1980s. So I'm amusing to myself that this process is being, that, that a similar process is happening right now where you are in Norway that happened in Toronto quite some time ago. And, and so it's... It really is fascinating to study diasporic traditions. Um, thank you very much for appearing on the podcast today. Thanks for inviting me. For those listening, uh, we've been speaking with Dr. Ina Ilkama on the play of the feminine of Ravtri and Kanchipuram. It's open access, so click the link in the click the link in the podcast notes, and you'll have you'll be able to download uh, the entire book and and have a read. Until next time, keep well listening, keep reading, and keep contemplating the power of the feminine. Take care.